0: You're listening to the Faith Made Welcome Podcast, a progressive podcast of faith where we look at Christianity from a progressive Baptist tradition. This podcast is brought to you by Commonwealth Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. So whoever you are, wherever you are, or whatever you think about faith, you're welcome here. Please let us know what you think about our podcast by subscribing to it or by sharing it with someone who may be looking for a podcast like this. And we would love to hear your feedback, so please leave us a comment or question on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Let's get started.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Made Welcome podcast. This is episode number six, and I just wanted to quickly jump in here right before this one got started to say that what you are about to hear is the second part of a three-part series That we did with Dr. Graham Walker of Mercer University, the School of Theology, on the intersection of faith and science. So, if this is your first time listening to Faith Made Welcome, I might recommend that you go back and check out episode number five, which was part one of the three-part series. Or even better, you can go back and check out uh, the entire Faith Made Welcome podcast from the beginning. So whichever you would like to do, we appreciate it. I hope you enjoy this episode coming up. And next week, we'll release the third part, which really gets at what we were chopping at the bit to actually cover here, which is the relationship between evolution and creation. So uh, this episode here, episode six, will bridge the gap between five and seven. And we really hope that you you enjoy it. So uh, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We love you dearly. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.
2: So if you want to avoid moving God slowly out of the face of modern humanity, then you have to be able to use methodological materialism that says, okay, I'm going to go research the world that God has created. And I'm going to ask the questions that are there about this world. I just can't assume throw my hands up and say, Oh, don't worry. Let's all go back to school. Things will be just fine. And, um, if we just pray hard enough or if we just think hard enough that God will take care of it. Uh, That does not, that does not work at all. But that's not to say that that scientist like Marty, like you mentioned is just overwhelmed with the complexity and the kind of the beauty and the synergy and the amazing awe that comes from the world in which they find themselves investigating that takes them to the point of asking the question, not that can't say, declaratively God is, but is God, you know, it, it, it's a more humble approach. Yeah. It's a way to recognize that, wow, this is just a fascinating drama. Back to our literature folk, this is a this is the, an enormous, incredible drama that we're part of, that we are mending the world. And Robin, that's Tekkon Olam, so mm-hmm. to mend the world becomes a meeting point where science and faith work together. Right back to Edward O. Wilson. Can we mend this world? Can we fix this world? It's going to take both the scientists who who endeavor to find out how it works, and it's going to take those who tell the story to motivate, to operate, and to get us to where we can use the scientists effectively. Now, those of you who know science history background, you know it's a it's got it's fraught with some dangers. Oh. Um, it's um, the Oak Ridge process project led to. The uh, the the first dropping of a nuclear weapon on, on a human society, right? Um, the scientists of Joseph Mengele and the death camps of Auschwitz, um, you know, on and on. Science is not in and of itself um, any, any it has no glorified position. Right. I I lectured right. not too long ago at the Tuskegee University and was and I went through the exhibition there of the Tuskegee experiment there is a lot of reason for people to fear science that is used by terrible narratives now see how we go a scientist can their their understanding can be used on the narratives that that are less than well,
1: yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes a scientist would say that, you know, religion has killed more people in history than anything else. And, the, you know, someone might counter and say, yeah, using technology that was developed yeah. by a scientist is how they killed all those people. It's not easy to vaporize a city. Exactly. You know, you can't do that with a sword. You know, you, you You're can't do that to with a point. stick. And that's, uh,
2: that's yeah. The point is the why, why and questions really do uh, shape the way we use the how. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: And, you know, going back to uh, when you were referring to contact the film, one of the questions that recurs in that is uh, just because you can't do something doesn't mean that you should. And um, most scientists, I think, might tell you that every single thing that science or technology has invented, whether it's a good idea or a bad one, it has done. It is done in one way or it's another,
2: and you in know, fact, in that um,
1: movie- people are talking about like human cloning. Oh my God! You know, you homie human cloning that freaks me out. It's sort of this playing God, quote unquote, sort of thing. Uh, science can do that. I hope it doesn't. Of, of course, it will. Of course, it will. You know, if it hasn't already been done, you know, every every other time throughout history, the lesson you learn from science is if when science figures out how to do something, it will it will do it
2: it will do yeah so paul you make the point the point there being is you have to have a narrative in which you use the science right and that narrative has to be very carefully scrutinized is it capable of seeing the um the fallenness of humanity Mm. and the real danger of that is it capable of seeing the real dreams and hopes of humanity and is it capable of that there's that one line at the very end of that movie contact where Ellie Arroway uh, meets the alien and the alien says to her you are such an interesting species capable of such beautiful dreams and horrible nightmares. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Ooh. There's the paradox. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean I think that's how like the I mean it really does. I'm I'm enjoying how much that this is about narrative because yes. like my <laughs> dissertation is about uh guerrilla rhetoric so I'm a guerrilla rhetorician. Uh, I coined that term as part of my dissertation. And so I studied uh, a lot of Che Guevara's work with the gorilla. Um, and I used that to think about how we do language stuff. Um, but one of the things that I found in doing that research is that the only difference between a gorilla and a terrorist is whose side you're on. And I think uh-huh. that that is it's so true to like, how do you look at scientific possibility has to do with whose side you're on mm-hmm. when whatever the results are, right? Um, whose side you're on in the faith or the science debate, a lot of it has to do with like what perspective you're, you bring to it uh, and what you're hoping to get out of a particular moment. It's more about you than the actual like, you know, observable truth of the universe. It's more about the individual in a lot of ways
2: yes it's a good observation there is no science that's disconnected from a narrative and narratives have sides uh augustine talked about the problem with the mac uh uh, kind of interpretation of the world and it's because it was polarized it's Uh you know us versus them lice versus dark so if you're on one side it's a very dualistic argument if you're on one side then all of those on this side are friends if you're on the other side you're enemies so they're all enemies. So you sublimate everybody that isn't yourself. You identify yourself only within your group. And there is no, of course, you flip it around and all those who are enemies over there see themselves as friends and everybody outside sees themselves as enemy. That gets to that core narrative I was talking about. Can you see yourself in the midst of of a paradoxical or at least ambiguous identity mm-hmm. that you're capable of internalizing both both fallenness mm-hmm. and, and uh, redemption within the same person huh. so that you can cut either way. So, so that which okay. makes a good story often so, is the fact that what looks like a tragedy becomes a comedy in the end. It has a twist. Um, as i recall the uh the book of mark and the book of matthew in the gospels they look very tragic Uh, they're (laughs) leading to the end Uh, the one who's supposed to be the redeemer is hanging on the cross every one of the followers has split and taken off and so you're you're seeing you're seeing what looks like a tragedy good man tries hard um everybody abandons him it's over and then (laughs) you have this strange twist of an ending. Um, You have the centurion say, and Mark, truly this man was the son of God. Nobody else could understand who Jesus was, but Jesus in his suffering was understood by the centurion, who was the last one there at the cross. And you see then these kind of reversals of identity that take place. And in the changing of the narrative, that's what you have. But it recognizes the ambiguity of life and the paradoxes that we live within. You know what Peter Berger said uh, about multiple narratives in living with pluralism, and that applies to religion and other and other communities of faith, um, with science as well, is that it gives us a kind of a sense of unsure uh, about who we are, uh-huh. and so then we desperately kind of seek to move to one side or the other, uh-huh. yeah. and and uh-huh. and that desperation may be the key to what's uh facing a lot of what we're facing in society today and it all is has for years the insecurity of uh, who's on top who makes authoritative claims science or religion well the fact of the matter is science as it is practice is a tool it's a methodological way of living and and understanding things it is always being used by people um who are of mixed morality. And that's what we need to kind of grab our heads, wrap our heads around. And that narrative shapes how, how, how we relate.
0: Well, I was also thinking while I was sitting here, listening to all this great discussion, um, Dr. Walker, would it be fair to say that is it doubt that is one of the connections between science and faith if doubt keeps bringing us back to the same narrative that we're trying to explore?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a legitimate question. If you come from, um, here's the way I like to put it: there's Protestant, um, there's kind of a Protestant principle in our faith, and then there's Catholic substance. So I'll hold on with me. I'm not saying the <laughs> Roman Catholic Church, and I'm not saying the Mainline Protestants. What I'm saying is, when we speak about Catholic substance, we're talking about there is something that we rally around. And that is, that is something that we hold to be important to us. Um, I like Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and following. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, listen to how that is said. If you're a Jewish congregation of, of early Christians and you say he is the image of the invisible God, then you're making a statement that might seem blasphemous to your Jewish community that you're in. Um, But at the same time, it becomes a rallying point for who they are. Identity-wise, going forward, that's a confessional statement, right? And yet at the same time, which image of Jesus is there? That he is, you know, the image of the invisible God. Uh, Yerslav Pelikan wrote a book that covers (laughs) 20 centuries of the image of Christ, in which he says, the only clear thing I can tell is, Um, Whatever the problem was at the time, Jesus was perceived as the answer to that. (laughs) Jesus is the answer to whatever problem. I mean, he goes through history and looks at it. But he comes to to the point where uh, he and Hans Kung and others make the claim that to claim Christ as Lord becomes like Catholic substance. But we also have to be aware of our problems with incorporating our own identity into who Christ is. And that needs to be critiqued. And the way we critique that is by other people who claim Jesus Christ is Lord for them. And we hear their dialogues, we hear their understandings, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we have an adult-to-an-adult adult relationship as we compare stories together. Mm-hmm. Now that's tough yeah. because you have to yeah. be willing to hear other stories, mm-hmm. right? It's To tell a story is one thing, but to be able to hear somebody else's story is extremely difficult. That's a spiritual discipline. And in so doing, we expand our own our own storytelling ability of who and how broad and wide our faith relates to others.
3: Yeah. So go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I kind of want to pause and spend a little more time thinking about the multiple narratives that might come from science communities. Like I think so far on the conversation, we've talked about science. Some of the perspectives from scientists, I think, have been maybe a little uniform. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, Paul, you've been in a lot of different scientific circles at this point in your life, Uh right?
1: uh
3: How have you seen different narratives about faith show up? Because I don't think the narrative about faith within the scientific community is like a monolith, right? So what have... (sighs) What have the narratives of faith looked like in the scientific community from your experience?
1: Uh, from my experience, I mean, it's uh, you're, it's reluctant to find you're reluctant to find someone who is willing to talk about it when you get more than five scientists together in a room. <laughs> I think I mean if I mean if you had a it's it's interesting if you if you had a at a standard scientific meeting back when we had conventions in, perfe- uh, in person and we would have conferences. AAS or whatever organization you would want, um, it's it's uncommon to have a session that has anything to do with faith. Um, and most scientists would say that that's because it's outside of the realm of science. We're not we're not using data to you know test hypotheses because if we were, this wouldn't even be a conversation. Because the narrative is contrary to the data that we we see when you see it from an um, when, when it's taken as the perspective of an extreme view. I think many scientists sort of end the conversation there by saying that every single religious person on Earth has an extraordinarily narrow view of the, of the universe that is very contrary to what data suggests, which is not a true statement whatsoever. I also think that occasionally, uh, and I have seen this every once in a while, when on the off chance at a scientific conference you do get a session on faith, the room is full.
0: Uh Mm. The
1: room is full. Um, It's packed. Standing room only. Uh, and, And that is because I think despite their best efforts to dismiss, I think most scientists know that this is something that cannot be avoided. And maybe some of the scientists are in the room because they're trying to come up with a better understanding of what the thought process is from somebody who they want to uh, have a conversation with. Or they see it as themselves as some sort of crusader whose objective is to convert as many Christians into a scientific way of thinking as others. Um, or they are a person of faith and they're trying to do their own reconciliation with themselves and with their family to try to entertain the notion of two competing ideas going into their heads at the same time. I think most scientists, however, approach this from the point of view that every single narrative that you have up there about anything is a hypothesis to be tested. Um, and the entire concept of the narrative is one where they are, they are perceived from a place of doubt, uh, at the beginning, from the start, mm-hmm. from the start. Yeah. Um, whereas, uh, and again, prove me wrong, prove me wrong. Whereas from the, from the, I mean, I, I'm saying the word religious out there, I mean, thinking <laughs> that that actually means something, right? It's, it's a broad word. I, I appreciate, um. Uh, goes at it from the point of view of not, of not doubt. And this has come up a couple of times in this conversation itself. You know, yeah. it's just from the, from the point of, I mean, before a mouth is, uh, is open and a word is spoken, there's conflict in, in the approach of one group is coming at it from a position of doubt and the other group is coming at it from a position of, of not doubt. And within, scientific circles you do have arguments on whether you know humankind emerged out of east africa or west africa you know we think of the african rift yet the earliest human fossils actually come out of morocco that we that we found so far so you know those not too close together (laughs) and the fossil record will say well you know not everything is preserved and the moroccan you know group will say yeah but clearly this evidence is right here so i mean there are competing narratives on human human emergence within the scientific community but And it's simultaneously sort of funny, because even though they are just sort of seen as hypotheses to be tested, uh, a scientist will hold on to their preference with such... Bigger and with such preference and with such a clenched fist holding on to the narrative mm-hmm. that it's either theirs or they like the best that I've seen people like throw things. I mean, you get almost fistfights at some of these scientific conferences yeah. sometimes. And if um, a scientist approach questions of science from that open minded doubt, um, why would they get into a fight about whose hypothesis is correct? So clearly, you mm-hmm. know, there is some faith element going into uh, yeah. What a scientist sort, sort of thinks, or else there wouldn't be such emotional attachment because uh, their own identity gets tied up into the ideas that they have. And to uh-huh. defend one's own <laughs> point of view is a defense of one own, one's, one's own work, one own, one's own identity, one's own point of view, one's career's life's work and how they see the world.
4: So, it, it sounds like different forms of fundamentalism. It is absolutely to me, right? Yeah. fundamentalism. Right? And I'm listening to all this and I'm thinking like, it It just seems as though one of the big failures of the church is not making space for people to wrestle with paradox. Because mm-hmm. as you said, right, the, the Bible's filled with paradox, mm-hmm. right? We've got warrior God and suffering servant and... You know, God speaking things into existence and God, like, creating, digging in the earth. Like, we have all these different
1: paradoxes,
0: paradoxes right?
4: within that one sacred text. Mm-hmm. And if pastors if de- would make space for that, right? Instead of pretending that those paradoxes aren't there. Yeah. If we would... See, see the, the story is the beginning. What it right is not what you said. The narrative right. is the place where the questions come from. And it starts the, the, the conversation starter. starts. I think there I you stole go. that
3: from Marty like months ago. He said that, that to me.
4: That <laughs> maybe that that's part of the bridge, right? Is that we're making things worse, but it's right there in our text to make space for that wrestling and the conversations and the differing ideas
3: it's all there. Yeah. It's like we have to lean into the discomfort and the most comfortable people I know about the intersection between faith and science are the people who are really tolerant of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Like they can let two things happen and just be okay yeah. in it.
4: And, and I, don't, I don't know what you think of this, Graham, but our Diana Butler Bass connects this with World War II. Um, she connects this, this shift in the church with the world seeing horrors of concentration camps and mass world war. Right. And people coming home from war and having seen so much that, that the way she says that the way churches try to kind of contain that was to make things narrower and narrower. Right. It's more, it's just hold on to this black and white and then we don't have to deal with the blood and devastation Mm -hmm. that we all now know is very real.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. So historically speaking, that that's the most recent expression yeah. of that. But you can see that back at the at the council of Trent in response to the Protestants and the you can see that in the enlightenment in the 60 years war leading up to that. You can see that there's this kind of constriction on the religious side and constriction on the science side even with regard to the enlightenment period. And you can see that the kind of the fears of of what's going on um, from the, um, um, I guess you'd say the retaking of the Middle East in the in the 11th and 12th century. So you can see you can see the Crusades and all of that as part of the scenarios in which you have expanding views, narratives, and then contracting views, mm-hmm. expanding and contraction. Uh, that's that seems to be what's going about. The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, his book is a very good one for talking about the kind of the dynamics of what's going on there Ooh. as a novelist. He's talking about the same period you're talking about, the modern period, but he's using um, the the kind of the middle age period to, to set the story of his narrative in Name of the Rose. Right. Yeah, so I think you're exactly right. And I think you're you're also clear to say... There is conflicting dialogue and narratives in the text that we have. And these conflicting dialogues have a way of working themselves out. Highlight that narrative dissonance that we've got going and see where it leads to some sort of constructive community. In order for in order for me to change I have to have a certain amount of self-doubt about where I am mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. I mean, that's just a part of conversion. We call it iconic eclipse. It's uh, James Loder talks about that iconic eclipse. In order for me to ever consider opening myself up to something new, I have to see the paradigm that I'm living in, the world that I'm living in begin to crumble. And it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be painful. It's going to be emotional. It's going to be catastrophic and yet it's the only thing that will send me looking for something else to, to to work with
4: and that's right there with james Fowler's stages of faith that you have to go what is it that the most christian there's six stages of faith right. most protestant christians never get above a level two right, right. the second stage and in order to shift from in. two to three you've got to have a crisis
2: you have to have a kind of an iconic eclipse yeah. for those of you who went to seminary you've been through we call it geschichte shock the german word for history but that's yeah that's it you you, you're struck by oh my goodness i've never seen it but then on the other side of that it's like oh wow these scriptures (laughs) tell quite a story and they're open to so many different things if i'm not in search for the one single little thing i'm actually witnessing an encounter with god throughout the ages so -hmm. that's just quite a different perspective Mm -hmm. but you have to go through that now scientists make that a methodological thing and paul's exactly right i've seen them throw things at each other <laughs> over over you're you're threatening my theory it's correct they get it's hot right. man they get hot. My hypothesis get my hot. research but
1: you'll never see more fervor than a, in a scientist uh, threatened you know
4: but yeah. christians do the same thing yeah i mean but like, inevitably <laughs> those fights are bad inevitably,
2: inevitably scientists see yeah okay the model So say, for example, the atomic model, how did we get there? It was the billiard ball model. You hit the ball, it shatters things and it moves all around. Is that adequate enough to explain the atomic uh, experience? No, it's (laughs) not. So we look at light and we see waves. Is that the model? Well, it's a little better, but is that it? No, there's more to it than that. And so you see each model kind of of digs and tears and it helps. It helps, but it it doesn't grab the whole picture.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, what what's been going through me for just a little bit now is um, you get these scientists who have these arguments with each other, and you know they all have their preference of what their model is and what their what their hypothesis is that they're really trying to promote and what they think is the one that survives given the preponderance of evidence and what it is. We all have our preferences based on the way we've it for sort of work. But, um, at the end of the day, I think most scientists, I, I hope if, if they're doing science, right, would agree. It's like, well, we have the data and the data is irrefutable. And from that truth, whatever that is may emerge, or we might start converging on it with, new tools for measurement and, and sort of whatever it might be. Um, another science doesn't, doesn't, you know, there's not a, a Catholic science and then like a Presbyterian science and like a Lutheran, <laughs> <laughs> and then like a, a Baptist and then like a Southern Baptist or, a, a you know, Missouri Synod Lutheran science. And then somebody, some group of scientists don't like it. So they form an ELCA, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of, yeah. sort of science, you know, for, for, Uh, an organization this is going to sound threatening for an organization so uh so that that puts faith at such a paramount why are there so many religions why why the why the fractionation why the nailing of theses to the door you know for for a group that puts puts so much faith in faith how does one choose which one which faith they they want
2: yeah, that's a good question. And Elizabeth Johnston wrote an interesting book titled The Quest for the Living God, and I think those two have read that book. Um, but it's, um, she points out that when you have an encounter with the living God and in the variety of cultural contexts that you have globally, then you really have you really have different ways of and models and metaphor and language for giving reference to that. And just like in science, you use models as reference points to the reality to which it points. So, also in religious faith, you use religious language and metaphors and domains that metaphors operate on to map a religious space and hold on to the testimony of that experience. Now, it, are the metaphors the same as the religious experience? No, they point to, they try and hold. Mm-hmm. And Paul, you know as well as I do, if you stick with one model in science and you don't entertain other models, then you're gonna be blinded by a whole bunch of data. You're not doing
1: science, right? That's right, The
2: the data will be lost. And in religion, it's equally the same. You have a similar kind of religious domains to express in different cultural contexts what this encounter with God is like, as reading the text of Scripture, that brings a horizon of conversation together? And are our metaphors exactly correct? No. No. Do they bring a very viable, real cultural context and expression that needs to be heard and experienced? Yes, it's a testimony. And therefore, you have this wonderful point in history where now Think about it globally for the first time, instead of waiting for caravans to bring ideas across the northern part of, let's say, India from from China to Europe. Yeah, yeah, instead of going the Silk Road route, you're actually now able to communicate with each other around the globe instantaneously and share those testimonies of a living God. So for the first time in human history, we've actually been able to map that out. Now, why is that important? Well, if it comes from one direction or the other, then the direction with political power and clout will be the authoritative version that you have. That means if it's a white male perspective on everything that comes first, if it comes from, let's say, German to begin and it goes to Oxford and then it comes to the United States, let's say Harvard, and then it spreads, disseminates, then that's the kind of the male European centered route. But... If people are experiencing the living God in Africa, in India, in China, and they're able to communicate back and forth, then for the first time in history, that directional flow of information seems like chaos, but it's closer to the kind of um, the church is made up of many parts of the body. The hand cannot say to the foot, Mm -hmm. I have no need of you. Christ as the head of the church now for the first time you're beginning to see a de hierarchy kind of knocking mm-hmm. it over and you're having to beginning to have a conversation well all of us know when people begin to talk at the same time and they all are valorized equally that it can be kind of chaos yeah. huh. but It's really getting closer to the truth.
4: Right? That's how we get a richer, fuller
2: picture. I mean, that's cool. That's where we're going with this. (laughs) And science kind of fits into this picture, I think, very well. Because a lot of what Christians do, go back to E.O. Wilson again, Mm -hmm. his kind of coming home experience. Wow. A lot of things Christians can do globally if only they had the right information and could work with the scientists to do that. Wouldn't that be amazing? So Mm -hmm. that's really, to me, Mm. fascinating. It's about narratives. It's about the global world that we're in and the ability to kind of reframe those conversations. Mm -hmm. Now, Baptist, okay, I'm just going to throw this in Baptistic. (laughs) Being Christian in a Baptistic (laughs) sense is is kind of a unique thing because it's so autonomous. It's so localized. Mm -hmm. It has the ability, though, to, to listen to the ground. What are people saying from the ground level? Now it counts on the fact that they're good they they can study, that people are listening to podcasts, that people are <laughs> doing the research. It counts on that fact because it counts on the ability to have good information to work with. Not spins or conspiracy stories right. that are meant to freeze the information. Yeah. But those that are open to listening to the living god. To me, that's just essential.
1: And That's science in itself, though, isn't it? in in, in, a, in a form. I mean, if um, if there wasn't observation in the in the reconciliation with one's lived experience and what one sees around them, with the faith as they know it, there wouldn't be a fractionation of them. Yes. Right. There wouldn't be. There wouldn't be that fractionation.
2: Correct. I wish I could do the drawing. I have a little drawing I do in class on different views of truth. So truth Hmm. is correspondence, one-to-one correspondence. How close are you to that reality and that kind of thing. Then I have another one called coherence. Truth as if everybody in the room agrees that pickles have souls, then pickles have souls. (laughs) I remember remember this. Therefore, we will be be working out the age we will be working out the age in which a cucumber is uh, uh, old enough to be baptized because uh, when does a cucumber become a pickle? So, uh, there, uh, there you go. All that.
3: This is That's not been... unlike what you were doing in your class this week, Paul. Weren't you having students trying to figure out like one thing that they could all agree is oh, yeah. true? So I,
1: I, set, I, I separated my, <laughs> this is obviously a biology class, right? So I separated them into small groups and they had five or six minutes to have a you know, there were there are a couple of reasons why I did this. It was the first day of class. So part of it is to get to know each other, somebody else in the class. It meets right. on Zoom. So, you know, trying to form some sort of community. So in that respect, what the actual task was was sort of secondary. But what the task was, was, you know, have a small conversation with yourselves within the small breakout room of four or five people and uh, come back with a statement that uh, is true that everyone in, your, everyone in your group agrees is true, right? And it can be anything. It doesn't have to be a science <laughs> thing. It's like, just come back with something that all of you agree is tr- a statement that is true. Uh, and I, all kinds of interesting things. And, you know, and they came back and they presented it to the class and some of them upon further... Uh, and so they they just sort of presented it to the rest of the class Had a couple of minutes to respectfully ask questions <laughs> or discuss amongst themselves that, that statement. And... Uh, I mean, you, you would see people's minds change in, in, in front of you a lot of yes. times as, yes. as new, new ideas and perspectives were confronted. But uh, some of mm-hmm. one, one or two of them actually made it through where the class said, you know, that, that is true. And it was the, the one. You know that cereal is soup. I uh-huh. think everybody's like, "Yep, that's true." <laughs> that's a known truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh so you goodness. know, and other other people were coming up with these like big profound things that were abandoned in like fifteen seconds after after coming back yeah. to the group. But the, the but simple things like that, it was pretty. It was pretty. Uh, that yeah. might be the basis yeah, of that, a new. That's that really. Of the that's world. a
2: great <laughs> example of building a coherent view of truth, and then taking it to the the third understanding of truth, and that is when you have intersubjective verification now you can have people say well let me interrogate that story and then that opens it up to further um adaptation right Uh, Mm -hmm. and and so that's really kind of where we're going with this yeah
3: yeah Yeah, i'm kind of interested in how um how much i keep thinking about learning theory and just like how we teach like even little kids, complicated subjects, like when we first teach them something, we don't teach them the full, we don't tell them everything there is to know about the solar system the first time, right? right? Like, right, right. And so, but I think a lot of times as you're on your learning journey, you think you know the thing because you've come across it once. And you might get scared about, like, I see this with my students, like, they'll be like, oh, I've already had in English class. So I already know English. And they get really threatened by the idea of like, asking new questions. And I think when you actually become an expert in something, all you have is questions, and you're yes. so comfortable and tolerant in living the questions. And it reminds me of how Robin earlier you were talking about how those that development of faith mm-hmm. and and the stages of sort of um, what is it spiritual formation that we might go through, and we get stunted in these low levels. Like, does part of our fear as Christians or as faith people? Is part of our fear of science or whatever might be threatening us? Is it because we're locked into that that kind of, like, childlike learning space where we have to, like, once we get comfortable with living the questions and and all the synthesis of ideas, like, that's where, like, kind of more complicated mm-hmm. but more interesting views of the world come from. So...
4: This might be connected or I might totally be derailing us. And if I am completely derailing us, (laughs) just just (laughs) say we're going to like shut this off and and regroup. So there was an article um, by RSN, RNS religious news service this past week uh, entitled QAnon, the alternative religion that is coming to your church. Did you see this Graham? So this, this Um, article is about like, pastors who are realizing that they are now losing church members, not just to science, but they're also now losing church members to QAnon. Yes. And what, what is happening that people of faith are like believing that celebrities are eating babies, right? Like how did, I mean, that that's more than just childlike thinking. I don't know whether that's rooted in just a, I don't know a need to escape. Is that escapism? Is this like the new rapture?
1: It's like, so what? What need theology? is being met right. that is not being met by that? It's why What unmet need is this addressing?
2: Yeah, you know,
3: why do they need that narrative? That are falling
1: yeah. for
4: something so ludicrous. Mm-hmm.
2: Now it's interesting that um, that you all mentioned. Um, cognitive dissonance earlier because that plays right into this, yeah. um, cognitive dissonance theory. Remember by Leon Festinger wrote huh? the book when prophecy fails, it's a great book. Uh, he lets, unfortunately you can't do this with your graduate students anymore. So I guess I won't be getting a, a new, a new book out of this. in the DM program. <laughs> <laughs> but he asked his, he asked his, um, Uh, Grad students to become embedded in a community that was seeking the end of the world, and as the as the um, end of the world seemed to be um, focused for them, then they would live in such a way and build the narrative necessary in order to keep everybody coherent together, and the didn't matter about the bizarreness of the story it, 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 the purpose of the narrative was to keep the group together. Mm-hmm. And so the more bizarre it was, the easier it was to identify who the other members were, and to actually work closer and closer together. Um, so I, I hear it often. Um, yeah, but it's just a leap of faith, you know, being, being a Christian means a leap of faith. It doesn't mean believing any uh, thing in particular, it's jumping into the unknown is what it is. Yeah. And, often that's kind of what they're saying and there's no doubt it builds a kind of community connectedness. Now in the cognitive way, cognitive dis- dissonance came up was when the end of time was supposed to happen and it didn't, um, then they had to recalculate yeah. and they created bizarre stories as to why <laughs> the end of the world didn't happen as it, and it would would have. So what they were doing is they're building their narrative around the um, that sense of community that's being built. So I don't see this as unusual, and I do see it as competition in church life because church life is about building that sense of lost connection. Mm-hmm. And when have we been in a time of more lost connection yeah. than we are right now? I have uh, you know students who would you know really prefer to be in class and we not be able to understand each other with all of our things on our faces and everything because we crave the lost connection that, um, that we're in the midst of. You know this from churches. You know that singing is a part of the kind of the rhythm that is all together. It's not just making the noise. It's, it's sympathetic unity yeah. of a group. We have rhythm together. We sing together. We participate together. We pray together. That is all about being a group, and it's really, really hard to be alone. So it doesn't strike me all too strangely that a narrative would emerge as a counter as to try and bring people together in times of feelings of great anomie and anxiety. And that's kind of what I feel like from my take anyway yeah. is what i'm seeing here that makes sense
1: the outrageousness of it though is just <laughs> right through That's... the roof i mean <laughs>
2: yeah it's crazy yeah it yeah
1: <laughs> i mean can we start with something that doesn't require celebrities <laughs> eating? Bait? i mean this... i mean let's start
2: with know, cannibalism you, got, <laughs> you, got, you, got, you had jim jones and you had yeah. all the other oh yeah dudes. yeah yeah
1: <laughs> david koresh well, you know. david koresh and yeah, yeah
2: yeah yeah you have us versus them and that kind of lays out um Mary Douglas talked about that groups that are us versus them. Uh-huh.
1: This podcast is produced by Sherry Spiegel, Paul Fitzgerald, and This Most Unbelievable Life. For more information, please check us out at www.thismostunbelievablelife.com.